from Podcast One. Coming up in this episode of Target USA. Why is it that Kim Jong-un has made an about-face on his nuclear weapons program? Personally, I think Kim Jong-un has made the strategic decision to say that North Korea needs to feed its people, needs to work on an economy that's, that's a failed economy, an economy that is not taking care of its people, where there's strong elements of malnourishment. We have to remember that North Korea, going back to the 50s and 60s, was an economic model for East Asia, and now it's an economic basket case. But there's a problem. North Korea doesn't trust anyone, and nobody trusts North Korea. But given President Trump's decision to pull out of the Iran nuclear deal, is a deal with North Korea even possible? I think, you know, we're going to have to, that's going to be one of the things we're going to have to have in the back of our minds, is how do we convince people that, yes, we can be trusted, yes, we can be counted on, yes, our signature on a piece of paper means something. Coming up on this edition of Target USA. The National Security Podcast. From WTOP in Washington, D.C., this is Target USA. Russia could render huge harm to this country. North Korea's secret missile. Capable of reaching the whole of the United States. Dangerous terrorist. D.C. is repeatedly mentioned as someplace they would like to seek an attack. Cyber criminals. Decryption successful. America has a target on its back. And on this program, we investigate the threats, the people behind them, the agencies fighting them, and the impact on you. This is Target USA. The National Security Podcast. I'm J.J. Green. On Tuesday, May 8th, 2018, President Donald Trump held an historic news conference at the White House announcing that he was pulling out of the deal for Iran to shut down its nuclear weapons program. In the process, he mentioned North Korea, which the U.S., under his administration, is trying to do the very same thing that he just undid. Today's action sends a critical message. The United States no longer makes empty threats. When I make promises, I keep them. In fact, at this very moment, Secretary Pompeo is on his way to North Korea in preparation for my upcoming meeting with Kim Jong-un. Plans are being made, relationships are building, hopefully a deal will happen. And with the help of China, South Korea, and Japan, a future of great prosperity and security can be achieved for everyone. After years of threats and bluster, North Korea has changed its tune and is ready to stop launching missiles and testing nuclear weapons and sit down with its neighbors and the U.S. to talk about complete, verifiable, and irreversible denuclearization. But as this stunning reversal is played out, Many are asking, is North Korea's leader Kim Jong-un for real? I think the prospects are very good. Ambassador Joe Detrani is former director of the U.S. National Counterproliferation Center. We had a good summit between President Moon Jae-in of South Korea and Kim Jong-un of North Korea. We'll have a meeting. Uh, President Donald Trump will be meeting uh, Kim Jong-un uh, in a few weeks. I think the prospects for that meeting going well are good. And if that meeting goes well, I think the prospects for... Uh, Peacefully resolving uh, the uh, North Korea nuclear issue is good. 
And Dr. James Turner, who went to North Korea in 1994 as a part of the U.S. Department of Energy team working on verification of North Korea's dismantling of its nuclear program, says a lot of things have to be considered. Uh, When Mr. Kim came into power, he said that his highest priority was to develop deliverable nuclear weapons, not only the weapons but also the delivery system, so that he could uh, deter against regime change. Mm -hmm. And apparently he thinks he has that capability now. Then the next thing he said was he wanted to focus on the economy uh, because I think he recognizes that that is the way that he can become a real regional leader uh, there is through economic power. Because, again, you know, uh, again, if you draw a parallel with Pakistan, yes, Pakistan has nuclear weapons, but its economy is in such bad shape that, you know, outside its immediate area, it has no impact at all. Mm -hmm. And I think certainly Mr. Kim sees himself eventually as the leader of a unified Korean peninsula and a leader in the region. And I think certainly the way he is going to, uh, he's he's going to have a summit with Mr. Trump. He's had several meetings now with Mr. Xi. And so I think, you know, he is certainly... And with South Korea. Yes, and with South Korea. And so he's clearly playing, at least in the diplomatic big leagues now. Mm -hmm. And so uh, if he has now shifted uh, to, you know, build up his economy as a way of increasing North Korea's influence. Uh, Again, I think it would be in his interest then to be transparent. Uh, But I think, you know, we would be in a position, but he would have to understand that we would be in a sort of a trust but verify mode. Uh, Mm -hmm. And two, I think uh, uh, they would have to perhaps get over some hurdles that they have about how how much they can trust our side. Um, how much is North Korea really going to open up to the to the U.S. if they feel the U.S. is uh, belittling them? And that's a, a big question. Well, I think this is. You know, I think we need to get out of. You know, we we cannot view this as something comparable to General MacArthur on the deck of the USS Missouri in Tokyo Harbor in Tokyo Bay, take, accepting the Japanese unconditional surrender in World War II, because that is not. That is not what is happening here, mm-hmm. and so I think we need to disabuse ourselves of any if you know, anyone who has that vision of these talks. We have to disabuse ourselves of that notion, and so I think you know in that light, I think too it would probably be in everybody's interest to have as few distractions as possible in this process because it's going to be hard enough to do. Uh, anyway, without having a lot of distractions in, in, in side roads and things like that, that we need to, to, to again, go off on these uh, trails and that, that don't lead anywhere. So let's, you know, let's all, you know, be uh, mm-hmm. working, you know, like, like professionals on this and, and, and not try to go for, you know, some of these headlines or propaganda or anything like that. Dr. Turner, um, the release of U.S., hostages held in North Korea. How does that, in your mind, um, play into or uh, connect with um, getting to the point where the U.S. and North Korea can discuss denuclearization? I think it's a huge thing, both in terms of confidence building. Uh, Again, we talked about that being, you know, an important thing for both sides uh, in order to be able to trust each other. And two, I think it certainly clears away a potential obstacle 
uh, to some of the discussions that are going to be had. And uh, uh, and so, again, I, I think it's a, it's a positive move on all parts. And, uh, uh, and, and you know, certainly we can see where that, that leads, but, uh, but certainly I think, again, it takes off the table, you know, one of the obstacles, not, not necessarily an obstacle, but an issue uh, that could perhaps be a showstopper. So that's another question then. Do you think it's possible to talk denuclearization with North Korea, that is the U.S., while Americans are held hostage there? Well, I think, uh, uh, you know, we, we need to understand sort of, you know, what we can do. Mm-hmm. And, uh, uh, and, and, you know, do we want to eat this element, elephant in one big gulp or do we want to start with, you know, bite-sized chunks? And uh, uh, I think, uh, uh, you know, let's, you know, f- first of all, I mean, we, there, but there's so many things yeah. that we're so far away from. I mean, we don't have, you know, similar definitions of denuclearization. Mm-hmm. Uh, North Korea has talked about a phased, synchronized uh, system of 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 coming to a, you know of of agreements and and moving forward. Whereas we've talked about you know we are not going to uh, ease any sanctions until they've completely denuclearized. And so I think there are a lot of process issues that we have to work our way through, as well as definitions. And so again, I think you know to the extent that uh, you know we can 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 move forward on some of these other things. And uh, and perhaps in, in in separate and parallel tracks, you know, may want to talk about human rights and those kinds of issues. Uh, but uh, again, I think we need to to you know first see some some progress in this area and and also some goodwill that's built up between the two sides. But here in Washington, there is another issue. The North Korean regime is essentially telling the Trump administration it is not afraid of the U.S. A spokesman for the North Korean Foreign Ministry said via the state-run Korean Central News Agency, quote, it would not be conducive to addressing the issue if the U.S. miscalculates the peace-loving intention of the DPRK as a sign of weakness and continues to pursue its pressure and military threats, end quote. North Korea experts tell WTOP North Korea is growing tired of hearing that it made peace overtures because it's buckling under U.S. power. Essentially, there's a warning from North Korea and concern the U.S. is calling them fearful could derail this effort before it even gets started. There's that possibility. Hopefully that doesn't happen. I think uh, President uh, Trump has made it clear he wants to go forward with the meeting and Kim Jong-un is... uh, also made it clear uh, that he wanted, I mean, it's an honor for Kim Jong-un to be meeting with uh, President Donald Trump, first uh, head of state in North Korea to meet with a sitting president. I mean, he has to be excited about that. So, yeah, I'm guardedly optimistic. I think pieces are falling into place. I think there's been a significant uh, sea change in North Korea, and I think that's the impetus uh, for uh, being somewhat guardedly optimistic. One of the things that you've said to me over the years that we've talked about this is that North Korea, and Kim Jong-un specifically, is very pragmatic, very smart, yes. uh, and um, maybe doesn't get the credit for being as, as smart as he is by the West and certainly the U.S. Could this be a setup? I doubt it's a setup. I, I think uh, starting with his New Year's address uh, going back four months, no, I think this is a Kim Jong-un who is a 
uh, in my mind, has made a strategic decision uh, that he has to do something to change the trajectory for North Korea because the, uh, the prospects for North Korea economically are not good. I mean, this is a North Korea at one time in the late 50s, 60s, 70s was the model for East Asia. It's now an economic basket case. He's looking at South Korea with a you know, GDP of maybe $1 trillion plus and North Korea maybe close to $30 billion per capita income, uh, 30 plus thousand in South Korea. North Korea, we're talking maybe $1,300, $1,400 a year. The gap is so immense. So this is a young man who studied in, in Geneva. He knows what the West looks like. He knows what the... Uh, uh, what the possibilities could be for North Korea. And I think his comments in, a few months ago in his New Year's statement were accurate, where he's going to focus on the economy and improving the, life, uh, the livelihood for the people of North Korea. And it is the people, according to Detrani, and numerous other people, especially those involved with human rights, that have to be a part of any effort to negotiate with North Korea. I'm hoping this story will spread it to the yeah. world. That's the voice of Grace Joe, whom you've heard on this program numerous times. She's a young woman who escaped North Korea with her mother and sister after losing the majority of her family to the harsh conditions in North Korea. Not only our family mm -hmm. sacrificed um, by the regime, mm -hmm. but there's uh, more than 30,000 uh, North Korean defectors they sacrificed um, during 1994 to 1998. Um, and still there are many families, young children and grandmothers, they got abandoned on the street by the government and they are just dying there. Mm -hmm. And during winter season is the very difficult season in North Korea, which is they don't have any plants to eat. They don't have any grains to pick from the farm. They don't have anything to eat during the winter. So they have to suffer and just go through without um, any food. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. that's why many people, they die on the street, but of course government controls very well. So like visitors, they will never see the dead bodies on the street because they collect them before visitors see them. Mm -hmm. So actually the reality now in North Korea, it's getting worse, never mm -hmm. getting better. Mm -hmm. So I trying to, uh, I'm hoping uh, world people can remember all those um, innocent citizens who are still dying in North Korea. That's a part of the reason why it's so urgent to get discussions underway with Kim Jong-un and to make some concrete progress. But in the process, modalities and protocols have to be worked out. Back to the conversation with Joe Dutrani. What's the order of, of what takes place once this kind of discussion starts in earnest? You've sat across the table from North Koreans on numerous occasions over a period of years, back during the uh, mid to late 2000s. So you know right. how they operate. So what has to be done specifically, you know, maybe one, two or three things that have to be done from the U.S., the Western side, to, to get this thing off to the right kind of start? One, we have to agree on terminology. When we talk about, when North Korea says they're prepared to denuclearize, do they... Uh, they agree with our interpretation of denuclear. So it has to be defined. It has to be well defined because we define it very clearly and, and North Korea knows this. We've been, as, as you accurately said, we've been negotiating with them since 1994, but certainly since 2003. And then we had an agreement in 2005 
We're talking about complete, verifiable, irreversible dismantlement of all nuclear weapons and nuclear weapons facilities. That's our that's our core issue. That's the that's the all going in position. Now we have to have if we have agreement on that. Obviously, North Korea has their own list of requirements for the United States. But if we could understand that, we could then address their concerns about security uh, assurances because they they are concerned about their security. They want the regime wants to survive the country. The leadership wants to survive. And we have to talk about security assurances, whether uh, non-aggression treaty that we will not attack, invade using conventional nuclear weapons, uh, ultimately uh, a peace regime. Uh, a peace treaty to end the Korean War, uh, economic mm-hmm. development assistance, liaison office, ultimately, ultimately normal relations between our respective countries. Is that possible at this point? And in, in, in if all of those things that you laid out so eloquently are achieved, how long would it take to get to that point? Normal relations. You know, no, if we can get dismantlement, uh, if you will, accomplished, and I know it's going to be tedious because what they have to do is provide we don't know the complexity and we know it's a very complex of their of their nuclear weapons and nuclear weapons programs they have plutonium they have uranium uh, they have uh, significant uh, high explosive test facilities weaponization facilities and so we need a declaration from north korea uh, if you were listing the amount the number of nuclear weapons the locations of those weapons etc for the 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 plutonium reprocessing facilities the same thing with the uh, centrifuges that enrich uranium, the technologists, the scientists. We need all of the above. Well, that could take months in itself. It shouldn't. No? I mean, that's something that could be given to us w- within weeks. You think they ha- you, you're sure they have they, an inventory? They must know the, what they have. <laughs> Somebody must know what they have because they're enriching uranium and they're uh, reprocessing spent fuel rods and they're building uh, more nuclear cap- capability and missile capability, I might add, also. And that's part of the equation. Yes, I believe that could be done within a few weeks, a month, where they give a, a complete comprehensive declaration. The key then would be, how do you verify that? That's Joe Detrani, former director of the U.S. National Counterproliferation Center. And when we return after a short break, we tackle that question about verification. It needs to be understood very distinctly. First of all, what is going to be done how, you know, what, what, you know, who would be doing the verification? That's when we come back on Target USA. The National Security Podcast. I'm J.J. Green, and this is Target USA. The National Security Podcast. Before the break, Ambassador Joe Detrani, former director of the U.S. National Counterproliferation Center, and also a former special envoy for the U.S. to the six-party talks with North Korea in the 2000s, said it's possible to get down to the business of denuclearization in short order, starting with an inventory of North Korea's nuclear and missile programs. No? I mean, that's something that could be given to us w- within weeks. You think they ha- you, you're sure they have they, an inventory? They must know the, what they have. The, somebody must know what they have because they're enriching uranium and they're uh, reprocessing spent fuel rods and they're building uh, more nuclear cap- capability. 
and missile capability, I might add, also. And that's part of the equation. Yes, I believe that could be done within a few weeks, a month, where they give a, a complete, comprehensive declaration. So what happens after that? Well, first of all, I think, uh, again, lo- looking back on the, on the history of things, we start from a situation where North Korea doesn't trust anyone and nobody trusts North Korea. Again, Dr. James Turner. First of all, you know, clearly there have to be some confidence-building measures that need to be put in place. Uh, but also, uh, it needs to be understood very distinctly. First of all, what is going to be done? How, you know, what, what, you know, who would be doing the verification? You know, would it be something like the International Atomic Energy Agency? Uh, would they be doing it? Uh, also, too, uh, you know, we don't have very much transparency into their sites where work is being done. Uh, and for that, uh, I think we would really need, you know, whatever assistance the, that China, for example, could give us on, uh, uh, you know, where their assets are. Because I think, you know, clearly, I think uh, China has probably has some contingency plans on what would happen if, there, if the, for some reason, uh, Kim was, was overthrown or assassinated or something like that. You know, they would certainly, one of the things in, that they would do to protect Chinese interest would be to go and, and take control of sensitive weapon sites, among other things. And so I think they have some insight, perhaps, that we don't have, and I hope that they would share that with us. That was my next question. How big a factor do you think China will be in this summit that uh, President Trump and, 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 and Mr. Kim are going to uh, engage in? I think uh, they would play, they're going to play a huge role. I think they've been positioning themselves for this. I mean, they've had uh, uh, summit meetings between Xi and Mr. Kim, uh, you know, in Beijing and, and, and Pyongyang, and uh, recently in Dalian. Uh, and, uh, and I think, you know, uh, China is certainly positioning itself to be a key player in all mm-hmm. this. And also, too, I think uh, they do have a mutual defense agreement with North Korea so that any sort of U.S. military action against, uh, unprovoked U.S. military action against North Korea, uh, you know, China would then have to decide whether it would want to invoke that treaty. Now, China has made it clear to North Korea that if North Korea starts hostilities, that they would be on their own. Mm -hmm. But if the U.S. started something that, uh, you know, they would have to decide whether they would come to North Korea's assistance or not. Back to our conversation with Ambassador Joe Detrani. We wanted to know more about what might be possible in the verification process. Would they allow Americans to participate in the verification process? Yeah, uh, they've allowed them before with the 2005, September 19, 2005 joint statement. We had DOE monitors and inspectors at Yongbyon overseeing the dismantlement of elements of the Yongbyon plutonium nuclear facility. In fact... That's exactly what Dr. James Turner was doing. In the 1994 framework agreement, uh, North Korea agreed to shut down its research reactor uh, at Yonbuang. Uh, and uh, that, besides producing uh, heat, and, uh, heat and electricity, was also a source of the weapons material for them. Uh, and so uh, in return, uh, we agreed to provide them with heavy fuel oil. Uh, to provide, again, to offset the the uh, energy they weren't going to get from the research reactor. And during his time there, he ran into one of the reasons why verification is absolutely so important. 
And one of the early shipments was uh, uh, rerouted uh, without them telling us where it was going. And we certainly wanted to assure that uh, the oil that was being provided was for civilian purposes. And so uh, after that, uh, the U.S. Uh, went in to uh, put flow meters on the site where they told us they would mm-hmm. be using it. And also we started some preliminary uh, uh looks at other places where they might be taking the fuel oil because we wanted to be able to monitor consumption and match that with deliveries. Also, uh, staff from my office uh, uh, was with the OE Department of Energy in in California at the time. Uh, Staff from my office was also at the nuclear site at Yambuang uh, to provide federal oversight of uh, contractors doing work there to account for the nuclear fuel that they had, to put it into containers, to barcode the containers so they could be inspected, and also some some minor cleanup work. And that's one of the key reasons why verification is important, and also one of the big reasons why the U.S. will want Americans there. Detrani agrees. And 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 ideally, they would permit uh, international inspectors, monitors from the IEA to come in and do the inspections. Verification is going to be key. Once you get a declaration and a commitment to denuclearize comprehensively, then it's a question of a verification regime and the ability of these monitors to leave even those declared facilities, if you will, the non-declared suspect facilities. And with that, I think we, we move forward and we can move forward rather quickly. And I'm not saying it's going to be three months. It could be three months. It could be six months. It could be 12 months. I don't believe this should go on for years. Everybody that I've spoken to has seemed to indicate that that this could take years, but you don't think or want it to, do you? I don't think we should go beyond. I mean, we're talking. You asked the good question about normalization. When will I? I believe normalization should take place when we're in the midst of a comprehensive dismantlement of all their nuclear weapons and facilities, and close to accomplishing those goals. We could have liaison offices that facilitate dialogue as we move towards the ultimate goal of dismantlement. But as we get closer to dismantlement, that's normalization. Embassies in our respective capitals. And I would hope it doesn't take years and years. It may take a year, a year plus. But I think it can be done uh, quickly and smartly if, if all sides are committed to the ultimate objectives. Okay. Now, what sides should there be? Who should participate in this? Well, I mean, right now, it's it, there's no question to end the Korean War. We, we need China at the table, sitting with our uh, South Korean allies and the United States. That's a given. Those are the given. But I would go back to the six-party process. I, I think in addition to China, I think Russia, but indeed for the United States, I think Japan needs to be at the table. So we've gone right back to six countries, or if you will, five countries participating with North Korea. I think that that is a minimum. And that could be expanded to others to include the European Union. The European Union was involved with the produ- with the uh, construction of the two light water reactors at Kumo, North Korea, pursuant to the agreed framework in 1994. So there is that element uh, where they participated, the same thing with Australia. So it could be opened up, but I think at a minimum, indeed, we need China at the table. Besides North Korea, South Korea, and the United States, China at the table. And then I I would say Japan and and Russia for sure. But Turner is not so sure about Russia. Uh, We need to make sure that our allies, uh, South Korea and Japan, that we are working together. Uh, Because certainly if Russia is involved in this, they are just there to make mischief. 
and also to you know China, you know. And why do you say that about Russia? Because that's that's basically you know it's it's a declining power, uh, and uh, basically that that's that's one of the reasons why they they make mischief because you know uh, that that's that's about all they can do these days. Now, yes, they can have an impact in Syria, and and yes, they can can occupy Crimea, but in general, you know, their role is now reduced to being a spoiler. Spoiler. And so, uh, but I think too, China is clearly positioning itself to be close to, you know, uh, North Korea. Mm-hmm. But I think, too, you know, we need to, in, in part of that due diligence, we need to figure out what what is it that we want China to do for us mm-hmm. uh, in, in making this thing work. In making this thing work, as you mentioned, uh, looking at the announcement regarding um, the U.S. pulling out of the Iran deal, what message does that send to Kim? I think it's 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 one. I think you know we certainly owe him some assurances, because I think we owe him some assurances that yes, if they sign an agreement with us, that we will do what we say we're going to do. And, but who who does that assurance come from? Because in I, Iran's case, they did a deal with a different president. That president's gone. Another president's in office, and I'm sure there were some assurances from the Obama team that this wouldn't happen, but. They're gone. Well, I think, you know, we've gone through periods before where the U.S. was viewed as an unreliable partner uh, because of these vicissitudes that were taking place. And so I think, you know, we're going to have to that's going to be one of the things we're going to have to have in the back of our minds is how do we convince people that, yes, we can be trusted. Yes, we can be counted on. Yes, our signature on a piece of paper means something. And yes, you know, uh if, if someone comes up with some negative criticism of the deal over here, we're not going to come running back and saying, OK, we want to renegotiate, you know, paragraph five on page 43, mm-hmm. uh, because, you know, once you, you know, once you reopen that kind of thing, you reopen everything. Mm-hmm. And I think, uh, you know, we're just going to have to stand behind the work that we do. Uh, and that's why we have to be careful that we get it as right as we can the first time. Uh, but also, too, I think if we do these confidence-building measures, you know, if there comes, if there is a legitimate flaw in the agreement, then hopefully there would be enough goodwill to say, look, this is something that we missed or something that, you know, there may be some unintended consequences for, you know, can we renegotiate this section? Uh, or here is you know, a possible fix for this issue in this section and, you know, uh, and try to fix things that way. And so, but I think we just need to make sure that we do our due diligence so that, uh, again, you know, we, we try to get it as right as we can the first time and have people think through every sentence, every paragraph, I mean, every phrase in that agreement uh, about what could go wrong. And, uh, uh, and to, to show ourselves to be a reliable partner, because I think that's you know, your reputation is it's it's that's all you got. Yeah. And it's 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 difficult to, to get a good reputation, but it's easy to lose it. And it's very hard to get it back to get it back. Any final thoughts? I just wish the president and his team all the best uh, in doing this, because I think, uh, you know, we, we certainly the hopes of the world have. Are riding on this, 
but I think, uh, you know, too, I think, you know, we cannot uh, go into this with rose-colored glasses. This is going to be long. This is going to be difficult. And, uh, you know, and this is, and, and whatever comes out, you know, we shouldn't be doing victory laps. I mean, this is, you know, this is not an unconditional surrender that we're talking about. Mm-hmm. This should be something that hopefully would be a, a win-win for both sides. It is May 9th, 2018, and at this point, we don't know when or where the talks between Mr. Kim and President Trump will take place, but we do know there's quite a bit of intrigue going on behind the scenes. One of the pieces of information that's not been reported is that a senior North Korean official is believed to have defected, and that official was a counterintelligence agent, one of North Korea's most senior counterintelligence agents, one who played a major role in building Pyongyang's nuclear weapons program, of all things. He's believed to have defected to Europe, and interestingly enough, is believed to have been a relative of Kim Jong-un. Not clear what the connection is, but one thing's for sure, it's not gone unnoticed by U.S. intelligence. And coming up in our next episode... My, my sense is that the feeling in Pakistan is that perhaps we are being scapegoated for the lack of success in Afghanistan. By by the U.S.? By whoever. But lack of success by the U.S. mission in Afghanistan? No, it's a collective lack of of success because it is not only U.S. mission in Afghanistan. I think it's a collective lack of success because there's NATO, there's every country is responsible. Pakistan's ambassador to the U.S., Aziz Chowdhury, sits down with Target USA to discuss growing resentment against the U.S. for what's taking place in Afghanistan and some recent incidents involving U.S. diplomats inside Pakistan have again ignited fury. Details and the latest developments coming up on our next episode of Target USA. Thank you for listening and thank you for your support. Please subscribe to our podcast and also let me know what you think. Send me an email at jgreen at wtop.com. That's the letter J, the color green, at Whiskey Tango Oscar Papa, jgreen at wtop.com. I'm J.J. Green, and this is Target USA. The National Security Podcast. Step into the walk-in with celebrity chef Richard Blaze podcast. Starving for Attention, every Tuesday on Podcast One. He's serving up great interviews with Curtis Stone, Thug Kitchen, Andrew Zimmern, and more. Download Starving for Attention with Richard Blaze at Podcast One and Apple Podcast. Also, remember to rate and review. Now, stay tuned for the latest headlines from the Associated Press.